0: Grace. a thoughtful faith podcast is a production of mormon stories and the open stories foundation all donations to a thoughtful faith are tax deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for mormons like you to support the podcast or to join the community Please become a monthly subscriber today at a thoughtfulfaith.org.
1: Hello, and welcome to a special collaborative episode of A Thoughtful Faith and Mormon Mental Health. Uh, My name is Micah Nicolaison, and I will be your host today. And I am very pleased to have with me two awesome Mormon women, uh, Natasha Helfer Parker and Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Natasha and Jennifer, thank you for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah,
1: thank you. Natasha Helfer-Parker is the host and manager of the Mormon Mental Health Podcast, and we have been discussing over the the uh, previous weeks that it'd be great to do a collaboration. And the topic for our episode tonight is the uh, uh, psychological concept of cognitive dissonance and how it relates to things like faith crisis and Mormonism and all that good stuff. And so that is going to be what we are going to tackle tonight. And fortunately, the, um, we could not have two better experts than Natasha and Jennifer to to address this issue um and so i would like both of you to sort of introduce yourselves to our audience for those i'm sure most of our audience is already familiar with both of you Um, but natasha if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and then jennifer if you wouldn't mind uh, telling us a little bit about yourself as well that'd be great
2: great um let's see i am a marriage and family therapist and i've been practicing for about 15 years i'm in private practice currently And I write a blog called The Mormon Therapist, which is kind of advice column format for questions for Mormons to be able to ask um, anonymously. And I also, yeah, do podcasts and do some writings. And um, I'm excited to be here today.
3: And uh, I'm Jennifer finlayson Fife and I um, live outside of Chicago and uh, married with three kids. And I'm a... therapist also in private practice and wrote my dissertation on mormon women and sexuality and so i work primarily with married couples and you know often people contact me because of my specialty in sexual issues so um and i also do quite a few podcasts and teach classes both online and here in the chicago area so i'm glad to be here
1: Perfect. Thank you both for for being here and for giving that introduction. So um, I want to just kind of introduce sort of why, at least for myself, why I think this uh, the the concept and theory of cognitive dissonance is an appropriate uh, topic for for this podcast. Um, several years ago, um, my introduction to the concept of cognitive dissonance came when I read. A, a book called Shaken Faith Syndrome by Michael Ash, who is uh, he's a contributor to FAIR and uh, has a has a blog and I'll, I'll put a link up on our website um, and it was in this uh, this book that I was introduced to the concept of cognitive dissonance and how it how it relates to you know, sort of having issues, being introduced to troubling aspects of Mormon history and doctrine, and things like that. And actually, um, I think uh, Mike Ash did a really good job of sort of giving a rough overview of it. And later on the lo- later later in my life, a couple years later, um, when I was sort of going through my own faith transition. Um, a lot of the things I learned about cognitive dissonance became were, were very helpful to me in sort of navigating that and sort of understanding psychologically what was going on inside my head. And it really, I think, helped me um, in a very healthy way, sort of manage my my faith crisis and faith transition, and so I think um, in terms of a thoughtful faith and sort of the goals and objectives that we have as a as a podcast, I think it'd be really great to um, sort of address this topic and discuss it and how it relates to Mormonism. I think it'd be beneficial for for many people in our audience and really for for everybody. I think it's something that that everybody should become familiar with. Um, So that is why we are talking about it. And so um, before we really start talking about Mormonism... Um, we, wanna, we wanted to first sort of go through the concept of cognitive dissonance and sort of understand it, where it comes from, so on and so forth. And so to start off, we wanted to just kind of go through the clinical definition of cognitive dissonance and and what it is. And so, uh, Jennifer, if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing us your thoughts of what cognitive dissonance is, that would be great.
3: Sure. So probably a lot of people have a basic sense of it. I mean, I think I actually learned about cognitive dissonance in my psych 101 class at BYU, but basically cognitive dissonance is this the the state of having, you know, inconsistency between your thoughts and attitudes essentially and your behaviors. And Whenever there's this discrepancy between what you're doing and what you believe, or a discrepancy between what you believe and what you're experiencing, that it produces a feeling of discomfort and that discomfort you know the human tendency is to want to um, compress that discrepancy or get rid of that discrepancy and so you know, oftentimes that dissonance pressures us to reconcile those two by either changing our beliefs um, to fit with our behaviors or our experience, even if that shift in belief is illogical or maladaptive, um, or to shift um, e- either shift our beliefs or to shift what we what data we'll take in. And um, Festinger was a theorist researcher who um, who out of a participant observation study that he did in 1945, developed the theory of cognitive dissonance. Um, And the study that he was involved in was looking at a cult who believed that the world was going to be destroyed by a flood. And, you know, the, the theory emerged out of what he observed in that is that when they, in fact, found out that it wasn't going to be destroyed on this particular day, that the more fringy members of the cult, the ones who were kind of less devout, essentially gave up their beliefs and, you know, chalked it up to experience. But the ones that were the most devout, you know, the ones that had actually um, given up their homes and work for the sake of the, their beliefs of the cult, the most devout ones were unwilling to give up their beliefs commitment to the cult and so what they did was they basically reinterpreted their experience in order to affirm those beliefs such as you know the flood didn't happen because of our great faith you know because of the faith of the cult members that we basically fended this off and so out of that research Festinger proposed this idea that the greater the discomfort you know then the greater the desire there is to reduce that discrepancy And so, again, we'll either change our beliefs to fit with our actions and experience, or we'll change our actions or experience to fit with our beliefs.
1: Cool. Very cool. Uh, Natasha, anything you want to add to that?
3: One thing I'll add to that is
2: it it also can be just between beliefs. You know, so even not Mm -hmm. necessarily attached to behavior, if you have two belief systems that seem to be contrary to each other that can cause this discomfort that Jennifer's talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to just even explain a little bit further, um, as far as people who, you know, have sold their homes or who are really, um, involved, it is kind of a sense of investment. However much invested you are in those ideas or those behaviors or those values, then the harder it's going to be to kind of change course. Um, Because the changing course can elicit other feelings like embarrassment or discomfort or shame or anxiety um, or even just um, one of my favorite words, which is ambiguity, the unknown. You know, so we, we don't like the unknown. It's not a comfortable place for most of us. That's just kind of human tendency. And just also to just normalize this a little bit is, you know, since we're born our brain is organizing information and labeling things and putting things into compartments so that we can make sense of the world. And so it's not abnormal to have cognitions and values and kind of ways of thinking about things. It's when those things are challenged by new information that this tension
1: arises. Right. Yeah. I remember when I read um, Mike Ash's book, the way he sort of explained it is that these, there's all these Thousands or even millions of cognitions that are sort of floating around in your mind or compartmentalized in your brain, and each one of them has a different weight. And which goes along to what you were saying, Natasha, the the level of investment, you know, determines how much weight a cognition has in your in your mind. And that cognition could be something like a religious belief. It could be a political belief. It could be anything, really. And your brain can't hold two opposing cognitions of the same weight at the same time. And that's when that disharmony or that dissonance. Uh, happens and that's sort of the the theory um Mm -hmm. of cognitive dissonance um how how well accepted is this concept you know in in your experience in sort of the the field of psychology like what's your experience or understanding of it
3: yeah i think it's very well accepted concept i mean i think it's uh it's a little bit hard to prove because you can't see cognitive dissonance, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done on the concept. It's certainly a part of the crises that often bring people in for therapy. So I think it's a well accepted um, part of the human experience.
2: I would agree with that.
1: Okay, cool. Um, so, in terms of um, examples that we can sort of pull from like day-to-day life. Are there any, uh, cause I think it's, you know, to, to kind of help, uh, us sort of understand exactly what we're talking about here. What are some day-to-day examples of cognitive dissonance? Natasha, would you mind uh, providing us with, with some thoughts there?
2: Well, there, yeah, there's hundreds and thousands of examples we could probably come up with. A very classic one is, um, the little white lie, so, in other words, you know, if your values include being honest um, and, you know, telling the truth, which is kind of a common value that people have, then it's difficult when, you know, somebody asks you, well, does, you know, does my hair look nice today or do you like my new clothing or, you know, just simple things like that. And in order to not hurt somebody's feelings, you may say, Oh, sure. I love it, even though I don't. You know, I love your cooking, even though I don't. <laughs> so that's kind of a very simple kind mm-hmm. of example. Um, Jennifer, you shared a great example with us from your son's perspective the other day. <laughs> you want to want to go there.
3: So, so something I would say is like, when you say to somebody that you like the color of their shirt or whatever, I mean, then you justify your lie by saying, I don't want to hurt their feelings. So that's a way of sort of bridging the discrepancy between I'm I'm somebody who's honest, and I just lied. Is that you then shift your belief and say, well, in this situation, so this is not to your point, Natasha, about what I'm, I'll tell you about in a second. but Or like, you know, you steal office supplies. Well, that's incongruent with your belief that you shouldn't steal. But then you justify it by saying I'm not paid enough or they're a large company and nobody cares. So that's where you – that's the moment of where you're trying to get rid of the dissonance between your behavior and your beliefs. But, yeah, earlier when we had a conversation, I was mentioning that my oldest child who's on the autism spectrum, he – he has a hard time with um, – he, he, what I should say is he really likes to organize the world and to feel very much that data is sort of compartmentalized into certain places. And this actually gives him a sense of comfort. And so when he was about seven years old, I remember saying to him that uh, peanuts were not nuts. They were actually legumes. And he just was like oh. – What you know? You can see like he's grabbing his head, the stress that's coming over him. He's like, "Yes, they are peanuts. Are nuts? They're nuts!" And you know, I could just see his whole body like going, coming overwhelmed. And so I'm there, you know, Graham. Okay, they're legumes. It's okay, Graham. You know, they're not nuts. They're legumes for these reasons and so on. And you see him just like kind of falling apart. And then he gets his breathing under control. And by the end, you know, five or ten minutes later, he's like, "Okay, peanuts." legumes, you know, <laughs> so he made the adjustment. He went through the very stressful process of having to shift his beliefs, his worldview. But, uh, you know, that's kind of it in a, in a moment.
1: <laughs> in a nutshell.
3: Exactly. Yeah, and <laughs>
2: well, nice. and that's a, that's a fun story because it involves a small child, right? But you can see very similar reactions as far as, um, the, the intensity of the emotion with, current themes in our in our culture you know i mean gun control is a very hot topic these days um pro choice pro life movements are very hot topics and and you can see that when there's data that's presented to either side when people have to kind of challenge their own belief systems on these very um integral part of their belief system it it's almost like they're having the same type of experience that Jennifer son mm-hmm. is having, you You're know, right. exactly. and really struggling with it almost physically.
3: Right. And so I've had people, I've heard people that even say, you know, well, the person that went into the school was, you know, the government put him up to that because they have this objective of having greater gun control. And so this was all, you know, a conspiracy and, you know, to the point of ridiculous that sometimes people will adhere to ideas that are that are hard to support <laughs> in order to not have to challenge their worldview.
1: So, right. So, um, when, and one, uh, one example that I always like to share is, you know, if you grew up your whole life being told and thinking that your grandma has the best fried chicken recipe in the world and nobody makes better fried chicken than your grandmother. And then, one day that is challenged, you will feel cognitive dissonance over something like that as well. You know, it's something that, that sort of humans deal with all the time. Um, If you were to, if either of you were to describe cognitive dissonance in terms of what it feels like, like what are some common sort of uh, symptoms for lack of a better word for cognitive dissonance? Like what do people experience when they, when they have it?
2: I think the best, the best probably word to describe it is anxiety. Yeah. Um, and that can encompass a lot of things like fear and shame or embarrassment. It can feel, you know, you can feel heated inside, like flushed, like you're turning red. Um, you can feel nauseous even um, because maybe something's almost like hitting you in the gut, like you have to rethink something so difficult for you to do. Um, Mm-hmm. There's probably all kinds you know, racing heartbeat. Um, yeah. Do you want to add? Yeah, more no, to I, that's that?
3: exactly the word that came into my head was anxiety. I think it's sometimes painful, you know, uh, disorienting, frightening. I mean, it just depends on you know how important the particular issue is, and especially around you know worldview crises, faith, you know, faith crises. Um, crises in a sense of who you are as a person, what your marriage is, you know, things that really matter to you, those are going to be much more anxiety evoking than the smaller discrepancies and,
2: and so on. So it can be something that can be resolved within, you know, a few minutes, and it can be something that can be resolved over 10 years, you know, so depending on how serious, you know, some people can have... um, clinical depressive episodes, you know, attach these types of things or, you know, ge- develop generalized anxiety disorder. Other people, you know, within half an hour, they've kind of figured something out and move on. So right. again, depending on how serious, um, how serious it is in their life and what it, what the implications are.
3: Right. And I, one of the things that I was reading about is that basically people that have greater anxiety tolerance do, better with cognitive dissonance they have more ability to tolerate it to kind of observe it and learn from it and people who generally have higher anxiety are much more like my son are much more um distressed by the dissonance that they want a sense of structure and certainty and i would maybe even argue that that the more you sort of demand that then often the less um the less well you will adapt to the new data and I think in some ways cause yourself more anxiety ultimately. But I think some people are more disposed to manage those discrepancies better than others are.
2: Which goes back to a lot of our different strengths and weaknesses as a human race. Some of us are more structured naturally, um, although that can become problematic when we, when we become rigid And then some of us are more flexible, but that can become problematic if we become chaotic. And so there's this kind of ongoing balancing between these strengths and weaknesses that we have. And depending on where you are on the spectrum can have a lot to do with um, how mentally stable and emotionally stable you are. Mm
1: -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. uh, So, you know, from what uh, both of you are describing, you know, in terms of a um in terms of a sort of a clinical theory it sounds i i hear the the way that people sort of define and approach cognitive dissonance sounds very similar to how people frame the theory of evolution where you know there isn't a lot of like you know, definitive proof that evolution is real, but evolution as a concept explains a lot of natural phenomena that is that, it is, that is observable in the world. And it seems like the same thing applies to cognitive dissonance. You know, a lot of the reactions of behavior that uh, humans have both healthy and unhealthy. And um, it seems like cognitive dissonance is something that can, can be a, a really um, useful model in terms of understanding some of those things. Yes. Um, and you know, based on what you said about sort of how it feels when you have cognitive dissonance, it's no wonder that our brains want to get rid of that feeling as <laughs> as quickly as possible. Um, you know, and this may be uh, a little bit difficult to sort of um, to sort of approach here. But what are some sort of common ways that you know our minds and our uh, what, what are some common ways that we try to mitigate or to resolve cognitive dissonance?
2: Well, that's, yeah, I, I'll just say some quick things because I think Jennifer already touched on this somewhat. But one is if you have two different belief systems, you change one so that it's consistent with the other. Um, if you have two cognitions that you don't want to necessarily give up, then you add more to create a storyline between them all Um, or you alter importance so in other words you kind of like Jennifer's example of um, so I'm telling a white lie even though I'm honest but the importance is focused on not hurting somebody's feelings so those are kind of some basic ways and and Jennifer you can add to that
3: Mm -hmm. yeah and one that I think is uh, that we do is something that psychologists refer to as confirmation bias and so when we really adhere to a framework or a way of thinking that we value or that helps us kind of make sense of our lives then we will not take in data that disconfirms that particular perspective so we'll kind of blind ourselves to the data that would throw that discrepancy make that discrepancy evident and so we look for things that affirm what we want to believe, and we ignore things that disconfirm it.
2: It is very difficult to change a person's mind about many of the topics we've discussed, politics, religion, um, right. social per- issues, right. Particularly
3: the more invested we are, as you said, Natasha, and particularly the more that they have kind of helped us frame our lives. Because I think, you know, this tendency that we have as human beings is not... You know, in some ways when we talk about it, we think of it as like this is this negative thing. It sort of shows how dishonest we are as a species and so on. Um, But what I would say is I think it's really a valuable tool in some ways to kind of narrow the field to to want to shift to a worldview, to want to find a framework because there's just too much data to take in. There's too much to make sense of and we're meaning-making creatures by – Nature and so the desire to make sense of it and to kind of commit to a certain framework or commit to a certain set of people I think that's actually beneficial and adaptive. It actually allows us to enter into the world in a more functional way. We're able to start, you know, being productive and making choices and you know, moving forward rather than constantly trying to figure out what we think and what we feel. So it's actually adaptive to do it when it becomes maladaptive, I think, is when it becomes too rigid, when we won't let it be altered, when we want it to stand irrespective of whatever of our data is challenging it. Because what we start doing then is undermining our ability to actually develop a useful framework or, you know, a functional roadmap, as it were, because we're not letting in important information.
1: Gotcha. So you know, what I gather from that is that cognitive dissonance isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just a, a natural thing that occurs. Um, what can be sort of healthy or unhealthy is how we how we personally choose to deal with it. And there's sort of extremes, you know, in terms of, you know, how much we shelter ourselves from outside information that conflicts with our, you know, deeply held and cherished um, ways to look at the world. Sometimes that can be be harmful and then on the other hand as you as you mentioned Jennifer we can't just sort of suspend belief about everything so that we're you know <laughs> so that we're not uh, right. anyway so um,
2: yeah if we can drive in any two concepts today like 500 times <laughs> it would be that a labeling is normal and that yes. you know that we that we organize information and that we fall into biases and fall into kind of, you know, cr- cultural norms. That's a normal part of being a human being. And B, cognitive dissonance is normal because we're going to be challenged, you know, by how we have organized our things in every single facet of our lives. So those right. two kind of opposing principles are going to be constant in our lives. And they're both normal and we can expect them and,
3: and they're we both- can normalize them. Right, and I think that, and they're both functional. I mean, at least potentially functional. So, you know, it's like I really feel like potentially
2: dysfunctional.
3: <laughs> it, it can, it can, exactly, it can be both. But you know, it's like I I feel like my life is better for making a commitment to one man, for making a commitment to be invested in my children, to making a commitment to be invested in my Mormonism and in my Mormon community. That in some ways, it's like my life is better for having kind of narrowed the field and sort of said this is where I'm going to put my most most of my energy um so I I actually I absolutely think my life would be um worse off if I weren't actually kind of labeling and categorizing and making decisions about where I was going to sort of be focused but then I think, as you're saying, you know, it's it's useful to kind of lift your head up once in a while and say, are, are these commitments still worthy? Are do they still make sense? Am I am I really um, staying um, honest in my my focus in my commitments? So,
2: along with that is kind of the concept of becoming enlightened. And most of us, when we have that experience, whether we see that as an intellectual process or a spiritual process through the Holy Ghost or however we want to frame that. It's usually a new idea. You know, it's usually something that we haven't thought of before. We haven't thought of it quite in that way. And so just like what you're saying, Jennifer, it's really healthy to have a focus. It's also very healthy to look up and look around and, you know, see things in a new light. Absolutely.
1: Cool. So before we, um, tie this all into Mormonism is there anything uh we need to sort of um address with cognitive dissonance sort of in a general sense before we talk about Mormonism
2: one thing I'll say is I guess before we get into Mormonism specifically is piggyback piggybacking on a lot of what Jennifer says but how we choose to resolve cognitive dissonance um oftentimes reflects our general mental health i think we've already said that but um it's important to also kind of recognize that it is a tool for growth and if we stay in rigid places then we can really kind of damage our ability to grow and so i just want to put that at the beginning of starting the mormon discussion
0: right
1: cool so um both of you, uh, from what I've gathered, um, a lot of your patients are, are LDS people. Is that safe to say?
3: Yes.
2: About 90% of mine.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so you both um, you know, have the opportunity to sort of uh, see how cognitive dissonance can manifest itself um, with LDS people. Are there any specific examples that you'd like to share that can sort of help us frame you know, some examples of how this can apply to Mormon culture and a, and a Mormon belief system.
3: Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I think I have the experience often of people coming in, in a particular crisis. And often it's a crisis in their marriage or a crisis in their life outside of their marriage. Um, sometimes it's around a crisis of faith, but usually that's more of a secondary um, issue that comes into my office. But there's often this experience that sort of what I've been taught is going to give me a happy life is not giving me a happy life. So uh, one of the themes is around, I've worked with a lot of LDS women and you know, I've been taught that if I was virtuous and good and did all these things in this way and then got married, that everything was going to work out right and I was going to be happy. And if we got married in the temple and so on and You know, he was a good priesthood holder, that that was kind of the ticket into a happy life. And oftentimes people are coming in disillusioned because they found out their husband's having an affair or he's addicted to pornography or that there's some um, kind of crisis in this idea. Maybe sometimes they're just depressed and overwhelmed and feeling like they've done all that they should do, but they have no joy. And, you know, often they're trying to sort out this discrepancy between here's the ideal that I've embraced and what i'm experiencing and where's the problem either i'm the problem or the ideal is the problem <laughs> which one is it and you know a lot of times people come in feeling lots of feelings of guilt and shame and inadequacy because because somehow i'm still not happy even though you know so something must be wrong with me uh everybody else seems to have it together or they're coming in and saying you know i I don't know if I believe this because it is not really matching up with my experience of my life or of my marriage or whatever it is. So there's often this struggle between either I, one of these things has to give. Is it that I'm wrong or the my framework is, is maladaptive or, or not adequate?
2: So Well, and I totally second everything she has just said. And, this goes back to the investment issues. My experience is that usually the more um, active and really invested members can be so very hard on themselves because it can't be the system. They're so invested, you know, in their testimonies and and they just dedicate their entire lives to the church and are, are really wonderful people doing wonderful things. So therefore... If there's a problem, it can't be, you know, the church or the organization or what they see as God's program for happiness. It's got to be me. So that's problematic. Um, at the same time, I don't want to say that. Um, I don't want to imply that there aren't active members who don't start questioning the system, because there are also many dedicated members who do start questioning the system, um, especially when they're educated on things such as mental health issues and how that affects this kind of equational happiness formula that we tend to um, throw out there so often. Um, And so, you know, you can start having questions. And then again, the more invested you are, the harder that crash can feel if you start questioning the structure, Mm -hmm. because you did put your whole faith and your whole life and, you know, even decisions that you've made, you know, like your marriage and um, missions and uh, monies that have been paid to tidings, you know, all of that is a huge investment in this lifestyle. And that can feel extremely excruciating to start questioning.
3: Yes.
1: Gotcha. So one way that, or I shouldn't say one way, one of the ways that we can, uh, as Mormons, experience cognitive dissonance is when the sort of prescribed lifestyle and narrative of how we should sort of plan and structure our lives doesn't result in the promised happiness or blessings that we come to expect. Right that that can make that can make people feel really. Um, Depressed or anxious, or you know, have those sort of symptoms of, of cognitive dissonance in their lives,
3: right? Yes,
1: okay. Um, let's, um, that's that's really good and I think really helpful. That's I think that's a useful framework. Um, let's talk specifically about faith crises. Um, how, um, you know, and obviously everybody has different experiences and different catalysts for their faith crisis, and many of them may be the very things that we're talking about, you know, in terms of, you know, I went on a mission, I got married in the temple, I do this, I do that, and that's not working out. Um, that can that can be something that, that catalyzes a crisis of faith. Um, other other common catalysts will include things like being exposed to um sort of troubling historical or doctrinal issues that may conflict with the established um, expectation for those things. Um, You know, what um, I guess what I'm trying to sort of ask is what sort of is the process that happens um, psychologically with cognitive dissonance when, when that, that, that process starts.
2: Historical perspective. I think, um, we do ourselves a disservice, I think, when we talk about, I guess, our church. What do I want to say? This the package as it's either all true or it's all false. And you will hear that even to, you know recently over the pulpit. Um, and I think the reason why that does a disservice is because it doesn't allow for ambiguity and history is complicated and chaotic and of itself. Truth is complicated and chaotic, and it's very much through the eyes of the beholder kind of um, process. And so when you lay it out as it's either all true or all false, you kind of set people up for cognitive dissonance. Yes. And um, and that's a problem if we want to keep our members, you know, comfortable or at least more comfortable with some yes. of the issues that we have in our past.
3: Yeah, and I don't know if this is what you're asking exactly, Micah, or not, but I I agree. I think that in many ways, because we are so um, focused on an authoritative structure in the church and being the true church, that we have, I think, simplified the narrative around what truth is and how you know you're in it, meaning there's a lot of pressure for conformity, in a way that I think was not the case when, uh, you know, back in Joseph Smith's times, or, you know, in the early church. And so there's a lot of conformity pressure, you know, people standing up and saying this, these are the four elements of a, of a real testimony, all the rest is useless. <laughs> you know, just things right. like that where, where, you know, you can only, if you don't fit in this box, there's something wrong with you. And while that can give the impression of a, of a, of, clarity and truthfulness and sort of a singular standard of you know what we're about I fully agree with what Natasha is saying that it really does set us up it it pressures the cognitive dissonance issue much more and I remember at a certain point in my life feeling like I I was spent expending a lot of energy trying to get everything to fit into the box to get all my experience to fit in and doing a lot of this like trying to make the meaning make it work and and because I was just somebody who wanted some sense of integrity in my belief I just really wanted to feel like I really that it really fit for me and that I could include as much data as possible and I think I felt that more than maybe other people did and my peers anyway and I remember just at a certain point knowing that I was deceiving myself, that I was I was actively being dishonest to try and make it all fit. And that recognition was in and of itself too uncomfortable for me. Like I couldn't sit with that anymore um, because I just recognized I was trying to deceive myself into belief and uh, that I just couldn't believe in a God who would support that. So – um, you know, it it shifted how I started looking at my experience.
1: Right. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that, Jennifer, that sort of personal experience. Um, Natasha, are there any specific uh, examples from your own life with Mormonism where you sort of went through this process? As therapists,
2: um, we're very privileged to be welcomed into many people's stories. And yeah. so... Um, I think that's been an extra challenge, in a sense, for me, where when it comes to cognitive dissonance, because I know I not only had to deal with my own story and how it fit, you know, in the structure and paradigm of Mormonism, but I'm having to deal with, you know, all kinds of other people's stories who are trying to make that same fit um, that are coming from very different situations than mine. And so, um, you know, and I can see the the uh, genuineness and the sincerity of that journey and of that struggle from people's um, experiences that differ from me, I mean, from at the core. You know, for instance, um, homosexuality. I mean, I'm, I'm not a homosexual. And all of a sudden I was having to be involved in the story of homosexual members and their families um, in ways that were very intimate. And like I said, it was a privilege. And yet it struck me to the core as far as cognitive dissonance, especially, you know, when I first started, which was 20 years ago, where the church hadn't yet come out with certain statements that it's come out with today. And, um, you know, where I had heard many different opposing views, um, you know, in my place of education, which was Brigham Young University. And so those are all things that i had to sit and ponder and and you know pray about and and meditate about and just really have very interesting discussions within my own brain about um to come to some of the conclusions that i've come up with you know for myself at this point in my life and and i'm sure that will continue to change you know as more knowledge progresses so it's i think there's so many different um, experiences. And and I think, you know, one thing that Jennifer said is what, what is this God that I believe in?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, in Mormonism, we have this really kind of neat paradigm that we can have a personal relationship with God and that God is loving and that God wants us to progress and that God wants us to um, find meaning in life and to find joy in life And so when the same principles, or maybe not principles, but maybe guidelines or structures or rules or rites of passage seem to not fall in line for some people in the church that leads to joy and progress, then that is an automatic cause for cognitive dissonance. So, you know, like Jennifer's example, when you get married to the, in the temple to the return missionary and all, you know, and all of a sudden you can't, um, have a positive sexual experience with that person or you can't seem to, um, find joy together, you know, that, that's a struggle. That's, that's a struggle. It doesn't fit the promises or the blessings that we thought were part of those decisions. And so, um, I think that that's the question I come back to a lot, even with my clients is who is this God that you worship and what is, what is he or she about for you? And many times I think what happens is that if, if the God that we formulate in our own minds, you know, because our experience with God is very personal. And so it's going to be different for everybody. If, if that picture no longer, um, jives with our current experiences. And that's that's a problem. And we need to work through that problem. And it's a, it's a personal conversion. And people can deal with that, I think, in one of three ways, but I'm sure there is more. One is to say, well, then God doesn't exist, because God wouldn't do this to me, or to us or to humans. Um, another way we can deal with that and these are examples of cognitive dissonance, is, well, we don't understand his or her ways. So I'll just, you know, muddle along because I'm going to have faith and trust that someday I will understand. Because I'm, you know, I'm a mortal being and I'm not meant to understand in this lifetime. Um, Another way we can have cognitive dissonance is to say, well, the scriptures are just written by imperfect men, and they didn't quite capture the essence of God. Those are kind of some examples, and you guys can probably come up with some more, but how we start to reformulate Mm
3: -hmm.
2: who Heavenly Father, who Heavenly Mother are to us.
3: Right. Which I think is just a part of spiritual development, too, because I think, you know, it's even in our theology very much the idea that one of the purposes of life is to come to know who God is. Which I don't think means, you know, okay, well, he's white, you know, white beard, white, <laughs> I meaning it's about like, what are God's characteristics and qualities? And the way you come to know them is through living it, through your own evolution as a person, through coming to know, you know, gain experience and wisdom and to come to be a more loving, solid human being. And so I think that that is part of our thinking is that we do need to evolve and that very that we're all immature spiritually and immature people spiritually immature people are teaching each other about god but are often more reflections of the the way we see the world rather than the way the world is meaning you know that that's so often what we reflect in what we talk about is it's really more a reflection of ourselves than it is about what it really is You know, I do see in my own practice that often there's an evolution in people's way of thinking about their faith and their notions of what is true and who God is. And many people are still able to fully find that within Mormonism. They just have a different and a wiser understanding of the teachings than what they held beforehand.
1: Gotcha. So, you know... If I were to sort of try to summarize uh, the discussion we just had, it's, it's easy for religious people and particularly Mormons to sort of have a crisis of faith and to feel cognitive dissonance when, first of all, there is almost a false dichotomy presented – you know, it's either all true or it's all false or an oversimplification, like you said, the four, you know, <laughs> elements of a real testimony when you're sort of, there, there are sort of these um, maybe unrealistic premises that are given to us combined with when our expectation doesn't match the reality that we experience, whether it's in our, um, in our marriages, whether it's in the level of spirituality we feel, or when we are. Have an expectation of our history or our doctrine that doesn't uh, that comes that it, that becomes threatened by the exposure to to new information or information that contradicts that. But what I also hear you saying, hear you both saying, is that this is a good thing. You know that this is something that that allows us and helps us to grow as human beings. And and I I would add to that by saying. You know, if one of the reasons that we're here on this earth, from a from a very Mormon narrative and perspective, is to gain experience to deal with mortality, um, cognitive dissonance must be an important part of that um, human condition and and what we're meant to learn and grow from here.
2: Absolutely, and you know, using Jennifer's word, reframe. I oftentimes um, not to minimize a faith crisis because it can very much feel like a crisis, but. Oftentimes I reframe that word into a faith transition because I do think that transition, transitions are part of normal life, just like developmental stages are part of normal life. You know, we have childhood, we have adolescence, we have young adulthood, we have middle age adulthood, we have elderly people, you know, so each stage of life comes with its own developmental um, norms and things that we're supposed to be experiencing at that time. And uh, even brain differences, you know, and developmental brain um Part You know, just parts of that. And so faith transitions are very similar. Um, I believe very much that conversions are continually part of our story and that we convert our sense of belief and faith and spirituality almost on a weekly to monthly to yearly basis if we want to, you know, if we want to challenge ourselves in that way. And, And like Jennifer said, I think that's a very healthy approach
3: yeah and I think you know I think the more honestly you grapple with those discrepancies, the more adaptively you navigate them um, because you know, for example, you can you can sort of reduce the dissonance in a simple minded way but dishonest way, and reduce the anxiety quickly but then maladaptively. So, for example, if you're who you think you are, and what you claim as an ideal are discrepant, like we said, it could you can make it as this is all about me. I'm the failure, you know, I'm the loser because I haven't been able to make this work. Or the other way you can do it is say it's all about my ideal, it's all about the church, for example. So let's say you believe you should be chased until marriage and then you are not, well then a dishonest way of resolving that would just be to say, Well, the church isn't true, obviously, because I don't want to think of myself as a failure. And therefore, I'll just give up the framework completely. Uh, And so those are both dishonest, what I would think of as dishonest ways of managing the discrepancy, for at least for some people, because they're not taking into account the other data that pushes them to sort of face something they don't want to face. So for the person who wants to make it all about themselves, they're maybe too anxious about dealing with that the framework may not be perfect, that the framework may not be able to answer all things for me. And I would rather see myself as a failure than have to challenge the framework that has guided my life. So I will take the hit or the person who says, I just want to give up the framework completely because it's too uncomfortable for me to think of myself as having failed at something that I value. So I'm just going to manage it by saying I no longer value it. And, I'm not saying that people can't change what they value, obviously, but it, am I approaching that honestly or am I doing it reactively but it maladaptively?
1: And being aware of your own uh, cognitive dissonance, I think, can be helpful to help you check yourself. Like, why am I feeling this way? Am I experiencing cognitive dissonance and how am I dealing with it? And so I think be and, and the reason – you know, the whole reason I wanted to address this topic with our podcast because I think just, just being aware of cognitive dissonance and being aware of your own sort of, and things like confirmation bias and the, you know, <laughs> thousands of other uh, cognitive biases we use to, to minimize cognitive dissonance, I think is really helpful to keep ourselves in check and making sure that our, that our motivations are pure and that, that we are being honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Yeah. And what Jennifer is describing in layman's terms is really all or nothing thinking, black and white thinking. I mean, we hear those terms, you know, often in our day to day life. And that that type of thinking can happen in the church, it can happen outside of the church, it can happen, you know, all over the place. So it is really that sense of the more mature we become, the more comfortable we are kind of living in the gray, which is not necessarily a concept we're culturally very comfortable with within Mormonism. And so I think that that's a challenge that we all have is to recognize that there are, that gray is a legitimate color. I've heard it said that black and white, you know, are um, or what was it? Oh yeah. I heard that, that if you look at a newspaper, you know, the gray shades, if you really pull them out, they're, they're made of black and white um, to kind of dismiss the gray. But I I stand clear that gray is a legitimate color.
3: Or another way that I think about that, Natasha, is it's not that you can't still, you're still very much in pursuit of truth. You're just not willing to take simple-minded positions to arrive at truth quickly. And so, like, sometimes political discussions drive me bananas because um, I feel like they are so much about their turf battles, they're so tribal. There's so much about identity and sort of like I want this framework to answer all questions. And people are very have a very hard time sort of stepping in really saying open to like what do we think is honestly the best solution for the most people and can we be flexible about it? And I just think that takes a kind of emotional maturity and I don't think it's like letting go of what's true. It's more around can we really think about what's going to actually be adaptive and helpful and can I be flexible enough in my own thinking to really pursue what I think is best or most right and I, I think it's not so much that you know gray I think why people get upset about gray is they think it's like a, immoral or amoral you know it's, it's not about actually taking a position where I think it's more around I'm trying to take a more, a more reasoned and grounded position that is more inclusive and, and isn't so fear driven
1: right um, one thing I wanted to, we wanted to make sure we addressed are kind of two, uh, two sides of the same coin. And this is specifically talking about people who become exposed to troubling history. I remember, uh, I was having a conversation actually with a ward member of mine. And this was, um, After I had decided to become a lot more public about my own sort of, um, unique approach to Mormonism. And during this conversation with this ward member, he expressed to me when I read that stuff. And (laughs) when he said that stuff, you know, I think he was referring to basically, um, uncorrelated history, or probably what he considered to be anti-Mormon literature, he said, when I read that stuff, it makes me feel sick to my stomach. And that right there was enough to tell me that this wasn't coming from God, that this was coming from another source. And it was interesting. And I think it's probably very common for a lot of people when they um, sort of start to grapple with cognitive dissonance. I think and when I say people and i I mean specifically Mormons, I think it's very common for us to attribute those sort of dark, almost depressive feelings to something that isn't pointing us to truth and and so we we sort of dismiss it as as coming from satan would Would either of you uh want to respond to that notion or that sort of paradigm
3: uh well i yeah, I guess I would just say that's a handy response <laughs> in the sense that it certainly makes it easier to simplify the world and to say my discomfort is just about that it means it's dark um, and I certainly understand that desire to frame it up as that um, I think the question I would have is you know how honest is it um, do you really really feel Clear that it's from Satan, or is it more like it's reactive, impulsive, and I want very much to put it there, so I'm going to um, you know, I think people say sometimes that you know people that leave the church are less happy than people that stay in I mean uh, what I would say to that is sometimes there's probably truth in that, but that sometimes that's also because it's easier to believe in a very i'm not saying the church is a simple framework, but i'm saying if if people can kind of hold very simple frames. There's, it offers a kind of comfort that we all want, right? The question is, how honest is it and at what cost? What are we not willing to integrate? And if we're not, I take very seriously the idea that the truth shall set us free. And in many ways, I f- that I feel like that's very much a product of my growing up in the church. And so I really believe in the truth in the sense that I'm in pursuit of it always, even when it's uncomfortable. And so... I think sometimes we wanna just say, Well, anything that's sort of outside of what I'm what makes me comfortable is therefore an evil as opposed to I wanna if I'm going to become like God, I have to have the courage to be able to look at information and to and to bring wisdom and reasoned responses to it and to make good decisions about it. I can't just narrow my field so that I don't have to deal with any of it or grow up around any of it or mature around these ideas. So anyway, I guess I understand why somebody wants to go there um, because it simplifies things, but I, I don't know that um, it's really useful.
2: Well, this idea of emotion being tied to truth is also tricky. Yeah. Because – um You know, we do read in the scriptures, you know, that truth will feel a certain way. You know, we all kind of have our own interpretation of what it feels to um, have a spiritual experience or to have, um, you know, answers given to us by heavenly hosts, you know, whether it's the Holy Ghost or Heavenly Father, however you, you think of that. And so, you know, I run into this a lot with clients is, you know, they may have very different ideas or values or ways to understand their faith. Um, then they have a hard time knowing what to do with all the experiences that they once saw through a certain lens. And so that's that is tricky because we do ha- we do tie again we make connections right. And so I have this emotional experience. I want to know what it means. I'm in this social construct that tells me this is what it means. And so I kind of add up all those, you know, or connect the dots and and I come up with this great story, which oftentimes can be shared over a testimony meeting pulpit. And I'm not saying that to minimize that, because I think that those are valid experiences and those are valid constructs, but it doesn't mean they can't be constructed in different ways. Or if you hadn't been born in a different culture or a different society or different family, even that you would have construed those even slightly differently, even within Mormonism, so it does get complicated when when we look at emotion and cognition and how we tie those two together
1: yes. you know for me, I think it's value that's why I think it's so valuable for everybody to be informed about you know um, these sort of uh, factors that are going on in our in the way we process information, you know, because for somebody like me, you know, now that I understand what cognitive dissonance is, at least as, you know, as much as a guy like me can, um, if I have that feeling of anxiety or nausea, you know, maybe five years ago I would have been like, yeah, Oh, this is Satan. I'm, this is Satan influencing me, or this can't be true because it's making me feel this way. But just having a a little bit of a higher awareness of, Our own psychology, I think, is helpful in this situation. And it, and that way we're not closing doors to stuff that could perhaps be leading us to something bigger and better, even though it's, even though it's uncomfortable. And I'm also thinking of, you know, friends and family members of people who are having, experiencing a crisis or a transition of their faith. Um, I think it's helpful. For people who are who have loved ones that are going through that experience, to understand this as well.
2: Well, I just think our culture is changing, especially in the his, historicity type of framework. Um, you can really no longer say, "Oh, that's an anti-Mormon book," or and we have wonderful LDS historians. You know, Richard Bushman. We have wonderful books such as uh, Rough Stone Rolling that will challenge all kinds of aspects of your, you know, kind of, like Jennifer said, simplified narrative that we grew up with in primary. So that is changing. These are, these are respected books. These are books you can now find at Deseret Industries or, um, not Deseret Industries. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so maybe you can find them at DI too, I don't know. (laughs) But, um, anyway, the the idea is that we can no longer be like ostriches and putting our heads into the sand. These things are out there. History is, you know, alive and well, as far as some of the um, complexities that, that we have in our past as a Mormon faith and tradition. And so that isn't really That's not going to fly anymore that the, well, that's just anti-Mormon literature. And and I'm glad, I'm glad because that really kind of opens us up even more so to these kinds of ideas and more and more. I'm seeing, you know, even in the enzyme and in other types of publications and seeing references to things that before I think would have been more questionable.
3: Right. I think sometimes the, the care and concern that we have for one another should also push us to not just dismiss ideas as being from Satan that I think if we love one another, we have to be willing to step into their experience and to think about what they're struggling with. And even if we come up with different conclusions, that we're not so afraid that we won't walk beside them.
1: Yeah, I think it's very common in, in uh, Mormon culture to treat those with questions and doubts and concerns Almost like they're a disease that needs to be yeah. cut away from us, 11%. but that but that's not bearing one another's burdens that's not what we covenant to do with each other and I think what you're describing is exactly that instead of dismissing somebody's concerns, you know bearing their that burden with them is something that we are supposed to do as latter day saints
3: right
2: those opposing principles you know there's always um Kind of the bear each other's burdens, but there's also the, you know, don't, don't let other things influence you in unrighteous ways, you know? And so there's, again, there's many, many times, and even within gospel teachings that you're going to find opposing principles. I mean, the Garden of Eden is, is kind of a classic example, you know, through the Mormon lens, we see that as a very conflicting position that they were in. Um, and so oftentimes there is a choice to be made between two Mm-hmm. kind of righteous decisions, in a sense, you know, that you could construe as righteous. Um, and sometimes you're limited in your thoughts, or actions, because you're somewhat rigid about what is righteous, or one principle wins over another. And that's, that's hard. That's stuff we all have to do kind of on a regular basis is what what principles going to win out this time, and in this yes. situation.
3: Yeah, I think that's kind of As you're saying, it's fundamental to life. And I think, you know, ultimately we want our integrity to be what guides us and oftentimes figuring out what that is. Like, where do I stand? What do I really think is right? Um, Meaning I can both understand and care for you and not stand where you stand, not take the position in life that you're taking, but also not have sort of moved away from you just to protect myself or my worldview or So is the best in me driving that decision or is it, is it, is it love and compassion and wisdom that's driving those choices or is it fear and reactivity?
2: Well said. I'd like to revisit kind of this idea of justifying or rationalizing behavior because that is a big part of cognitive dissonance. And I Mm -hmm. think Jennifer, you spoke to it well when you said, are people honestly coming by their decisions as to what they're going to dismiss or, or value in their life. Um, but I do think that this is a bias that we within Mormon culture do kind of throw out in the sense that if we see people struggling, or if right. we, uh we just kind of assume that
3: Yeah, obviously, they're disobeying. That,
2: yeah, that they're, well, the only reason why he no longer or she no longer comes to church is because um instead of facing the harder questions, our ability, you know, our way to have cognitive dissonance would be to say, well, Um, It's not that there's actual historical issues that, you know, that I might have to face someday, it's because they wanted to, I don't know, go out and have coffee, you know, or um, (laughs) they wanted to have some alcohol or, and especially if we see them doing some of those things, you know, because as people move away from kind of our faith tradition, they may no longer have some of the values that we have, especially around kind of what I would consider more simplistic things like coffee or alcohol. If we see them behaving in that way, we may completely minimize their entire experience and right. just say, well, this is only because that's what they wanted to do. Right, And that can be very, I think, harmful, especially in family relationships when you have that type of view of one another.
1: Earlier I mentioned, uh, I mentioned uh, two sides of the same coin and what i was sort of alluding to there is you know from people who are um very orthodox and um for lack of a better word mainstream they can sort of react to uh cognitive dissonance um in and, and sort of attribute it to satan but on the other side i think um for those who are very informed about what cognitive dissonance is um and this is actually something, Natasha, that you mentioned um, before we started recording is, you know, they can sort of attribute a lot of the spiritual experiences and testimonies that people have and almost be dismissive of it and and tack it up to people just managing cognitive dissonance. Would you mind kind of uh, going into that a little bit?
2: Well, I, I was just saying that I, I think that and this kind of goes back to black and white thinking. I think oftentimes Um, At least what I see is that more non-traditional believing clients can be very dismissive of more traditionally believing members. Um, But oftentimes I think what they fail to see is that they're falling into the same type of black and white thinking that they're criticizing. Right. Right. And that's that's true of all of us. You know, we tend to not like things that – you know, that we share traits of. <laughs> you know, so, things that bug me about another person, if I really look closely, maybe are, you know, something I'm struggling with. So those are things I think we need to be uh, aware of. Because like I said, even if you're not a believing person in a, in a religious tradition, you're still having to face cognitive dissonance, you know, in other aspects of your life. And so this is not something that all of a sudden education is going to save you from Um, or, and sometimes I think it can leave believers or more traditional believers in the light of, well, they're naive or they're not intelligent enough or they're not willing to look at the hard issues. And I think that that's a very unfair assessment of, um, of our believing members in the church and that you can have spiritual experiences that are very real and very personal and unique, and uh, and that those are valid. Those are valid to that individual. And we don't have a right to disrespect that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I just couldn't agree more that I think that kind of simple-minded thinking is, is immature, you know, it is just as immature in either direction. I have a friend who was telling me about um, a, a relative of his who was always a kind of very um, – what's the word, maybe Orthodox member of the church in the sense that was kind of maybe not very critical in his um, relationship to the church. And when Prop 8 came out, they kind of wholeheartedly went and knocked on doors and so on in California. And my friend was saying to them, you know, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that you're so willing to do that. And, you know, he was expressing some of his challenges to that pressure in the church to do that but they did it anyway well then recently they became disillusioned my friend's relatives became disillusioned and they decided to leave the church and now they were putting pressure on him like come on let's go drink something let's go you know you shouldn't you you should have sex that's no problem so they're putting pressure in the opposite direction now almost in an anti-mormon way and he was saying you know May you be more thinking, and they were they were expressing disbelief in their own willingness to do, to be um, a part of the Prop Eight campaign and so on, and so he said, you know, may you be more thinking, in your new orthodoxy than you were in your old one, <laughs> uh, which I thought was quite brilliant because, in the sense that we often. Don't want to think about the complexities of life. We want to just sort of adhere to a new a new identity, a new way of thinking, and sort of hope that it will give us the answers, rather than really um, tolerating the discomfort of discrepant ideas, discrepant experience, and not rushing in to judge it. You know, and, and you know, just that we're counseled in the church to not judge. And to be aware of pride, which I think are two elements, whether you're in the church or out of the church, that undermine our ability to make good, um, to, to really know truth, to really know what's right, because we want so much to kind of assume we've got it. And, but I think it really sets us up to be simple in our thinking and to have, um, too narrow perspectives on life. This is particularly, um, particularly
2: important in mixed faith marriages because one of the, the one of the founding principles of a healthy marriage is respect. And if you can't respect the person's, um, you know, beliefs and ways of construing their world, then you're going to run into some really big hiccups for, you know, for dealing with one another.
3: Right.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, I've had the, really the privilege of, you know, in the past couple of years, um, becoming really close friends with, uh, with a lot of people who have, who have left the church and, you know, sort of no longer, uh, find value in Mormonism. And these are some of the best people I know, but a, a lot of people that, uh, that I've sort of, um, uh, had the opportunity to meet, I see, um, exactly what both of you are talking about, where they they sort of the same black and white um, sort of sucker's choice that caused them to leave Mormonism. Still, they still use it in their in their in their in their ongoing ways of structuring their reality, and uh, and so kind of in a funny way, it's like you can. Take the Mormon out of the church, but sometimes you can't take the church out of the Mormon. You know what I mean? It's like they still—it's so ingrained in us that we we still sort of uh, hold on to that uh, <laughs> that mm-hmm. that paradigm. We just sort of tweak it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, or yeah, what I would say it's... is immaturity is universal. <laughs> meaning, <laughs> meaning human beings—they want simple answers. They want certainty. They don't like anxiety um and i just think it's moral courage to tolerate it enough to keep adjusting how you how you engage in the world but i do think that's you know we all do it
1: cool well um i think we've done a pretty good job of sort of addressing um all these issues i think you know even though we sort of kind of uh Went off in, in different directions here and there. I thought everything was, was really valuable and I, I really appreciate both of you, uh, participating. Um, before we wrap up, is there any, I, I, I'd love, you know, if there, if there is a way to sort of tie this all together and make some final, um, uh, statements or suggestions, um, for our listeners, if you, if both of you wouldn't mind taking a turn and doing that, I think that'd be really useful in terms of a conclusion for us
3: sure um you know socrates the unexamined life is not worth living that w- while that's maybe um a little bit of a harsh statement <laughs> um that you know i do think that that cognitive dissonance is is what pressures us to examine our lives and you know faith crises i see them as um as a good thing you know and uh, that It's really about how do we approach the crisis and, you know, how much integrity do we bring to it? And I think the, where I'm often pushing my clients is to be really honest with themselves, to kind of face the discrepancies and to bring their best selves to them. And, you know, to ask yourselves the question of like, what really matters to me? And is this a belief that is helpful for to me, helpful to me and makes me a better person or, you know, a more grounded and compassionate person or not? And, you know, can I adjust my beliefs and and still hold to what I really value and hold to be true? And I think, you know, to just pressure ourselves to bring our our best selves to that struggle. So um, those are my thoughts. Yeah, I guess I'll close by just
2: saying that, um, like Jennifer, I believe in universal truth however our individual ability to formulate and understand truth I think is greatly affected by many things so my brain my biology my gender my sexuality my culture my religion I grew up in my the country I live in my politics Um, so truth although universally kind of out there is hard to understand. And I think that we become prideful when we think we've got a a cornerstone to truth or when we think that we have a lot of it figured out. And and so although there are many what I find valuable truths in the gospel, um, as we understand it through the lens of Mormonism, I also think we need to be continually careful and vigilant to not be prideful. And to not assume that we have it all right. And um, I guess that's just what I will close with.
1: Awesome. I I love both of those statements. Um, A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to interview Nathaniel Givens, and he had written a series over at times and seasons about the concept of epistemic humility. And, uh, I think it's a great companion episode for our listeners to, to check out and, and sort of absorb. And it very much goes in line with what Natasha just said. And, um, you know, I think being epistemically humble as opposed to epistemically prideful is a great way for us to not Uh, dismiss cognitive dissonance, but incorporate it into our lives and use it as a tool to help us grow and to develop. And um, I think both of you have given our listeners great uh, uh, perspectives and uh, tools in terms of how to balance um, ways of navigating cognitive dissonance in our lives. And uh, I think this is a a really great contribution. I thank you both for for participating. Thanks. Yes. Um, so I think that uh, basically wraps everything up um, again this has been a, a, collaborative, a collaborative production with a thoughtful faith and Mormon mental health and I believe uh, once we get this uh, episode finished and edited we will um, publish it on both uh, both podcasts um, and uh, I think that's it ladies thank you so much for joining us thank you come of
0: every blessing to my heart to sing them grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafraser.com. Melodious, and sung by flaming tongues above. I'll praise the man.